You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, some friendly reminders. Our website is up and running, hazardground.com. You can go there for more information on our guests, pictures, bios. Also, previous episodes are on the website for you guys to listen to, as well a list of our sponsors for the podcast that keeps us up and running. Want to remind you guys to follow us on all the social media sites as well Twitter at Hazard Ground, Instagram at Hazard Ground Podcast, and on Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast. You can keep up with everything we have going on each and every week. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers all the freshest ingredients and recipes you need in exactly the right proportions to make simple, seasonal home-cooked meals. New recipes are created each week by Blue Apron's culinary team, so you'll learn to cook with new ingredients, cuisines, and cooking techniques. Meals are between 500 and 800 calories and start at just $8.74 per serving. Shipping is always free. I'm telling you, I've used Blue Apron many times already. Their food is delicious. Every sponsor on the Hazard Ground is a product that we've used and will stand behind 100%. Otherwise, we wouldn't waste your time talking about it prior to the episode. Now for a limited time, new customers get five meals free with your first two orders. That's five meals free with your first two orders. So get on over to hazardground.com sponsors and click on the blue apron banner. Remember, support for our sponsors goes right back into the Hazard Ground, making it the best podcast it can possibly be. That's hazardground.com sponsors. Click on the blue apron banner, get the discount and discover a better way to cook. Now onto this week's episode. This week's guest is a 20-year veteran as an infantry officer in the United States Army. He had 11 combat deployments overseas, including with the Rangers and Special Operations Units. Uh, he currently is part of Kenning Associates, a top consulting firm specializing in leadership development. And he is also the author of a book called A Light in the Darkness, Leadership Development for the Unknown. It is J.C. Glick on the Hazard Ground Podcast. J.C., thanks for being here, brother. Hey, thank you for having me. Really looking forward to, uh, to talking to you and, and sharing some stuff. You know, listen, it's really interesting whenever we get somebody of your background who really specializes in leadership, it's always uh, interesting because there are so many different dynamics to being a leader today, not only in the military, but out of it. And I'm very excited to talk to you about your specific experiences and how you feel, uh, you know, about leadership today versus years ago when you were in. But while we're on that topic, let's back up and and get to your start in the military. Yeah, so... um... You know, it was it was pretty average. Uh, I went to uh, to the University of Rhode Island, uh, and after kind of a a, a trying childhood, um, felt that uh, I was in college and I really needed to to pay back uh, some opportunities I got. So um, I joined uh, ROTC, and uh, you know went through that whole uh, process. In fact, uh, on my the day I graduated, I didn't go to graduation. I just got commissioned and 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 went and had a party because um, <laughs> I was really I was really focused on on what I wanted to do. It was uh, you know um, I wanted to be an infantry guy. I wanted to go to Ranger School and I wanted to go to the Rangers. Um, you know did did the the normal path. You know IOBC Ranger School um, did some other schools. I'd done airborne as a as a cadet. And um, I was lucky enough to serve in the 82nd as my first uh, assignment. Um, 
was able to deploy to uh, to Haiti in a support op and was able to compete in the Best Ranger in 1997. And luckily, um, I had a commander who was very who had come from the Rangers, and uh, also luckily, Sam McChrystal was. Um, you know, the regimental commander at the time and just, you know, to show you the tie there. So I met, we got to know each other in 1997. What rank was he when him. you met him? He was a full colonel okay. and I was a first lieutenant Okay. Um, because I was a little bit older because I had previously before uh, the brigade commander that signed my packet to go to the Rangers, I had a brigade commander that did not sign packets to go to the Ranger regiment. Um, so I was a little bit older, so I had to get McChrystal's approval. Um, and it's funny because, you know, here we are 21 years later, he wrote the forward to my book. Oh, wow. Um, so he's been kind of a mentor to me and I, I've, I've tried to, you know, I've learned so much from, from so many leaders. Um, but I certainly learned a lot from him uh, and the NCOs that worked with him. Interesting that uh, my only run-in with General Stanley McChrystal is he signed my Bronze Star for my first deployment. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I was I was part of uh, CJ Soto for Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, and uh, I was attached with the Fifth Group and Tenth Group. And uh, I think he came through once to 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 work with the ODAs or at least you know visit him and say hello when we were in Baghdad, but. He ended up signing my bronze star. And then of course, you know, everything went down with McChrystal the way it went down. And it was like, well, that's, you know, that's not really the the guy that we remember who put on the uniform every single day, but unfortunately, you know, politics sometimes get in the way. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that guy was, um, you know, I, and I was fortunate to work with uh, four great leaders like Stan McChrystal, Dan Allen, Ferreter. Um, you oh, know, you work Tom with Ferreter too? General Mike Ferreter. Uh, <laughs> he was yeah, my second was deployment. My, <laughs> so he was uh, my third Ranger Battalion commander for like he was the first one I had, and then Dan Allen took over for him. But I kept running into all those guys uh, throughout my career, and you know was lucky enough to to work uh, for McChrystal both when he was regimental commander, when he was the uh, SOC commander. I mean, so I went right back to the Rangers after company command and then, um, you know, went to the asymmetric warfare group. I mean, he's been, he, he's, he's been a leader of mine for a very long time. And, and everybody listen, I know we're getting off trail here, but this is kind of it's yeah. weird as big as the army is and the military is sometimes it's really, really small. And, you know, a general, he was three-star general. He's a uh, Lieutenant General Mike Ferder. When I met him and, um, and my interactions with him, uh, were nothing but pleasant. He was one of the nicest general officers you'll ever meet. I mean, he's just a very down to earth, humble kind of guy. And, and I only say that to people listening because a lot of people who haven't rubbed doubles with general officers know that sometimes, the, you know, you don't get to be that level in any organization doing something for 30 years without being typically of a certain kind of personality type. And yeah. the, the humble, laid back, down to earth guys aren't usually that mold. And so when you find one, like General Ferreter, it, it, it just stays with you, you know? So so it's funny you say that. So um, General Ferreter, again, recently crossed paths because uh, we both wrote forwards for another First Ranger Battalion's uh, author. Uh, so for a guy named Joel Carpenter. I know Joel. Um, Joel's on the podcast. Okay, <laughs> okay so, so Joel... Um, Joel recently wrote a book and, um, and he asked, uh, 
you know, Nate Self, Mike Ferreter, and my and myself to to write the forewords for it. So it was really kind of neat to uh, do a kind of a project where you know Ferreter and I are both doing the kind of the forewords for that. But I have been really lucky because um, you and I have both met those other kind of generals. But the guys like McChrystal and Allen and Ferreter. Um, you know, and I could probably think of a, a couple others, the Beckers of the world, they're, they're different. They're, they understand that their, that their job is, is to lead people. Um, not, not, you know, mission accomplishment is secondary to them because they know that their people will make mission accomplishment happen. Um, I think, I think of the current commander right now, who's in, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Mick Nicholson. Um, uh, you know, that's who I commanded for, uh, as my first command and look, that guy, that guy gets it. He never worried about end state. He worried about taking care of his people. And he knew that if he took care of his people, his people were going to do anything that they needed to do to accomplish right. the end state takes care of it. We with general Becker. Are you talking about the general Becker? That was the, uh, the DCG of the 25th infantry, infantry division under Bernard Champeau. Brad Becker. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he was on my second deployment as well. I, I had a lot of contact. It's really, it's uncanny. Okay. We've gotten off track here. I just can't believe we know exactly <laughs> all the same people uh, throughout our careers. Anyway. So yeah, Brad Becker is enough. Just, he, he would come into the gym and work out with us. Like he was just a regular Joe. It was, it was, it was weird, but it wasn't because he's like a general officer. So you're like, you're expecting him to, to kind of just lock everything up and he's just sitting there working out with you. Like he's just a regular guy. Anyway. I didn't mean to get um, off track. Right? Let's get let's get no, back no, to your I, story. <laughs> look, I, I got to be honest with you. I think I think that talking about these guys is talking about my story. Um, these guys, and then as importantly, or probably more importantly, uh, the NCOs at either their level or my level. I mean, and I think of the the Sergeant Major Halls and the Sergeant Major Birches and the uh, Sergeant Major Canells, and I mean, you sit there, the Sergeant Major Merritts. Uh, the Farusis, and you sit there and you're like, how, how could you not learn from those guys? Yeah. And, and understand what real leadership was. And I think that it was, it was seeing all of them and, and realizing, holy cow, this is really, I've been, I've been really lucky because, because at the end of my career, I probably worked for probably the worst officer I had, I had ever, the worst leader I had ever come in contact with. And I mean, it was toxic. And, you know, I'm sure that I had my fair share of culpability in that relationship. But what I realized was I had really been lucky throughout my career to work for just tremendous leaders and work with tremendous leaders and learn from the best leaders in the world. And uh, that's why, I mean, I decided to write the book is and the, the, the book is dedicated to every NCO that I've ever had the, the privilege of serving with. Because NCOs, they're the ones that are leading up, down, and sideways, right? And they do yep. it, the good ones do it in this uncanny way that you really don't even understand you're being led. But they're taking care of everybody and they're doing, you know, they're not worried about PT belts and grass. They're worried about preparing people for combat. They're worrying about making sure that they, that they create the right atmosphere and the right environment for people to become their absolute best. And you know, it's interesting, JC, and I'm sorry to cut you off when you talk about NCOs and and the military folks listening will understand this. And it's no disrespect to the NCO Corps, but there are a lot of, you know, E7s, E89s who worry about the rocks next to the grass and what, you know, whether your PT belt is the right color and how, what length your socks are and and all that's fine and good. And, And no one has ever said that 
standards aren't important. But the other side of that equation, and really, I think this is what makes the Army a unique organization and a unique corporate culture, because there are more laid back individuals, you know, for myself, considering I'm a, I'm a lieutenant colonel, like I, I, I think I'm very fairly laid back. I have a much different leadership style than many of other guys who wear the same rank, who, who want to, you know, constantly flex their muscle. Now, I'm with you. I'm about <laughs> empowering people. And, and I think when you find NCOs who really get that, that working with somebody side by side and, and trying to bring out the best features and best qualities of that individual is really what separates you, you, I, I guess from sergeants from NCOs, in my opinion, and and I just think that that is that that's a part that gets overlooked. And those rare people balance out the organization and and, and kind of give you those pockets of humanity that sometimes the military strips us all of. No, I I, I think you're spot on there. I think um, I certainly had a very different style than a lot of guys. Um, I it just tried to be me, and you know, look, I'm not the smartest guy. Um, I, I know that I'm surrounded by smart guys in most of the units that I was in. Um, and I believed that if we give people the ability to make mistakes and think through things, um, they're going to innovate and they're going to be better than we could ever imagine. Um, I, you know, you, you're, you, you know, nobody's arguing uh, about the requirement for standards. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, something that when I was, um, you know, at Fort Jackson and um, doing basic training, I, I'll tell you, I, I, and I talk about it today, I talk about the fallacy of standards, because standards are this comfort thing that leaders get. It's really a management tool. It's not a leadership tool. It's, um, it's this idea that as long as they can get this, we're good. And what we don't realize is that that ceiling quickly becomes the floor and people stop trying after they've made the standard. I mean, most, most soldiers, once they know they can pass the PT test, you know, and I'm not talking about guys in elite units. I'm talking about just the average soldier. Sure. Once they know they can pass it, they don't, they don't worry about it anymore. They don't think about it. We don't, it doesn't breed that, that mentality doesn't breed a culture of fitness. It, it breeds a culture of, um, obedience. And, ma- and maintenance to, more than anything. It's just nothing right, maintain. Uh, Right. I can do X number of pushups. I can do X number of sit-ups and I can run in X time. And, and the problem is that you and I both know that has nothing to do with the requirements of a, of a soldier in combat. And, and it, and it really just, it, it, it creates this idea of mediocrity. So I'm very big on, you know, let's, let's not give people standards. Let, let's, let's see what they can do and let's see what they come up with. And you'll quickly find out who struggles and who doesn't. But more often than not, there's there's fewer that struggle than 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 the other way around. And and I've seen this in the military. I certainly saw it as as my military career continued. Um, and now I see it in the civilian world uh, when I work. You know, I, I'm very again very very fortunate. I work with professional football teams, professional and uh, basketball teams, uh, you know, NCAA Division One programs. Uh, and then really high, high level companies, you know, Xbox, et cetera. And when you tell people, hey, let's try to get rid of this standard. Let's see. Let's let's ask them, hey, I know you can do this. Let's see how well you can do it. I- I'll tell you what, people, people will never, ever fail to surprise you and make you pleased. I, I concur wholeheartedly. I mean, I just it, it, it's refreshing to hear. And I think you talk about it both in the military and the civilian world. When it comes to 
to leadership so often, it's the standards that kind of hold us back. And, and they uh-huh. don't, they don't, it, they don't allow for people to do anything else. Like we always hear about it. Even the civilians know this. Well, the army's goal is to break you down to a bare bones minimum and then build you back up. And when they build you back up, they kind of essentially want to build all the same people. Well, there, there's some flaws to that logic. I mean, it makes sense to a certain extent in combat because we all want to be trained the same way. But not every combat scenario, as we've learned from doing this podcast for over a year, there's no combat scenario that goes the way we train and nor any two combat scenarios alike. And so from that standpoint, when you have to inject humans into the situation, you, you, they're not robots. They have to make decisions based off of the information that they have and what they know. And I think if you train these people to be better thinkers and train them to be better uh, equipped to handle diversity and handle you know, uh, complex scenarios as opposed to some sort of baseline, I think we're a better organization for it. I think we're starting to transition to that. But still, there's well, a, there's an old guard that kind of hangs with their, it's like a cat with their claws in the rug to, well, these are the standards and these are what we have to hold to. So so that's exactly what what the book is about. Um, so, so, you know, uh, 16 Rangers were selected to go to Tradoc in my command, in my, you know, command board. And we all kind of talked to each other and went, what the heck just happened? I mean, we're, we're all from the regiment and we're all getting training battalions, which is our, which is our own thing because we said we'd take any kind of battalion. And, and general Dempsey wrote this great note saying, I want to put proven war fighters in TRADOC. I want to change how TRADOC trains. I want to change. And it was a great idea. It really was a great idea. I wish general Dempsey before he became chairman, had told the people who worked above us that he wanted things changed because for 18 months I spent uh, going toe to toe with, with colonels and, and senior officers and even, and, and in a lot of cases, senior NCOs on getting guys to stop being obedient and start being disciplined, right? Obedience is, I, I shine my boots because I don't want to yell that. I, 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 I clean my weapon because it's the right thing to do. So, so this idea of, hey, how do we get guys away from obedience? Because the problem with obedience and battle drills and all that kind of stuff is soldiers will do it. And I, I tell this story in the, in the book about, you know, uh, a unit, a transportation unit um, that, you know, before it goes out uh, on its convoy, it must have rehearsed a hundred times on actions on contact. I mean, just if you watch this, this organization in, you know, and this is 2007, if you watch this organization, you sit there and you go, that is the heat that, that unit is what the, that unit is to the standard. And then, um, not two miles down the road, they get hit with a complex ambush and in the, in the rehearsals, you know, if you're on the right side of the truck, you go off the right side. If you're on the left side of the truck, you go off the left side. Um, and they got hit and the bullets were coming from the, from the right side. So you'd think everybody go off the left side, except no, what they did was the right side of the truck went off the right side and the left side of the truck went off the left side. They did exactly what they were told. And that's because that's how we trained. So what I tried to do and, and really it was the drill sergeants that did it is we, we changed all that. We said, we're, we're going to make these guys think we're going to change we're going to completely flip the script on how they do things. 
Um, and, and the drill sergeants came up with it. And so for 18 months, the battalion got beat up. And then um, a guy named Dodd Seidman, who wrote the book, How, uh, had heard what, you know, I, I, I had a really good friend who was working with them. And, and, and we talked anyway. He heard what we were doing. He came down to, you know, because it was very much like his book. And he did an article in Forbes that's still one of the most read uh, articles online at Forbes uh, saying Army basic training isn't so basic anymore. And overnight, so the next day, uh, General Odierna, who is the chief, wrote on his Facebook page what Colonel Glick and his drill sergeants are doing at Fort Jackson and 239 is what we all ought to be doing. And overnight, uh, everything was okay. We were completely correct. And my next job was to, you know, help rewrite, you know, how we do basic training. And I saw kind of the the humor of, oh my gosh, for 18 months, it was miserable. 18 months of my command were miserable just fighting people because I, I literally had a general officer tell me, if you get a can of Coke in Cleveland or you get a can of Coke that's made in California, oh, they both God. taste like cans of Coke. Oh. And I said, but these are people. These are humans. <laughs> it, it, you can have a kid and you can have two kids in the same platoon and their experiences at basic training are going to be vastly different yeah. because of their strengths and their weaknesses in this. So um, it was funny. I, I watched uh, Fox News a couple days ago and they're like, oh, yeah, the army's changing and they're doing this. Yeah, we started that five years ago. We're finally getting around to imp implementing it because, quite honestly, there was a lot of fighting. There were people like, you got to do drill and ceremony. Well, okay, okay. Because that teaches discipline. No, it doesn't. It teaches mass obedience. But fine, whatever. You know, we'd make we'd make concessions to get guys, you know, to get the other things that we wanted uh, to do so that, that soldiers could think and they could, you know, shoot, move, communicate, and medicate. Uh, and they were ready to go to combat. And, and as soon as you use the cocaine, it's that linear thinking. That example is is from an individual who grew up in that mass obedience environment because that's all they yeah. knew and that's all they can regurgitate. And it's a vicious cycle. And look, we could go on and on for, for hours about this. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I, I certainly would love to, to talk more about it and we'll get into it, but I do want to get back to kind of the, the, the literal story that you of your career and going forward, because I think it's important to understand everything that we just talked about and how you got to that point. So let's, let's talk about uh, your first experience. Uh, you know, you got to Ranger school and you got through that and, um, after that, did you, did you know you wanted to go into special forces or is that something that you were selected for? How did that come about? Look, I knew I wanted to be in the Rangers from the time I was a cadet. I wanted to serve in the Ranger regiment because I had always been told that those were the best guys to serve with. And, and, and that was correct. Um, one of my biggest problems was, you know, uh, after I left the 82nd, went to the Rangers, I, I I got to stay in third battalion. I mean, my branch manager called me. I'd been a captain. I was still there. He's like, Hey, if you don't go to this next class, you're going to have to leave the army for the, uh, for the career course. Really? And so, so I, I went kicking and screaming. Uh, I did my 18 months of, of command time in the conventional force and went right back to the regiment. Um, my biggest problem was my goal was always to be a company commander in the Ranger regiment. And I, uh, and I accomplished it and then was selected for the Naval War College. And I went, I have no idea what I want to do now. So what year um, is this, JC? Like what, what time frame are we talking? 
So let's see, I, I left to go to the Naval War College in 2000. So I was at the Naval War College 2005 to 2006. Okay, so but just back up for a second. 9-11 yeah. happens, where are you, when are you, and, and how quickly do you end up deploying? Because the Rangers were some of the first guys over. Right, so um, I was, when 9-11 occurred, I was actually with uh, 1st Battalion, 23rd Infantry. We were out in the field doing a live fire exercise. Um and my packet had already been accepted at the regiment and I was finishing up my command. Um, two months, three months later, I was um, the regimental air officer um, for the 75th Ranger Regiment um, and assisting in the, the, the continuing deployment of uh, the Ranger Regiment in Afghanistan and planning uh, the initial invasion of Iraq shortly thereafter. Wow. That's a pretty cool assignment. <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was neat. It was, it was again, great. You know, Joe Votel was, uh, was a regimental commander. Uh, and he was a great guy to, to work for. Um, another guy who gets it, uh, KK Chin was the deputy commander. I mean, it, it was nothing but, but talent. Um, at the regiment at that time and got, and we were really completely focused. So when you're so. in the planning stages of all this, are, are you the guy who's like, well, I need to get in the action kind of guy or were you, you content kind of being at <laughs> no. that strategic level? No, I wanted to be, I wanted to be down there at the company. And the, the problem was, um, I had done, we had done this operation called uh, Winter Strike in Afghanistan, and it was the first time the entire regiment had deployed ever. And I was the air officer for that. And I finished that, and uh, at the time, Mike Kershaw was the 1st Ranger Battalion Commander, and he said, hey, come down and be a company commander. So I was ready to get down to 1st Battalion and do work. And uh, Colonel Votel, General Votel now, said, yeah, I got an heir that just moved the entire regiment. He's staying up here until we're through a couple other things. And um, no, I, I did not want to be at that level. I wanted to be down at a company as fast as I could. Looking back on it and seeing how everything unfolded, when you go through that whole experience in your mind, what's the takeaway? I mean, is there pride in all that? I, I think what I'm proud of is... Uh, is the, is the people that I worked with. I mean, that's what I'm, I'm really proud to say that, you know, who I worked for, who I worked with, um, the, the non-commissioned officers that, that I, that I assisted get to, you know, different places, the different planning, the, the, the other special operations units that I was, was able to facilitate air for, um, you know, that was, uh, that's what I'm proud of. Um, anybody could have done what I did and probably honestly done it better. Um, I was just really, really proud to be side by side with the, with the folks I was with, um, and recognized how lucky I was. Um, so now that didn't mean I wanted to be at that position, but you know, it's funny, uh, when you're coming to the regiment, you're like, Hey, I'll, I'll mop the floors if I have to. And you quickly remember, oh, I said I'd mop the floors and this is kind of, <laughs> this is kind of worse than mopping the floors, but I said, I'd do anything to serve the regiment. And I think what I started to do was realize that I was working for the Ranger on the ground. I, I wasn't, it wasn't about, 
you know, making the three happy. It wasn't about making the commander happy. It was about making, making sure that those, those Rangers got, got to where they needed to go and things worked out. Um, air is a tough job and the Ranger regiment, it's a, it, it's, I'm sure it's as tough as if you're in the 101st or the 82nd, I'm sure it's just different challenges. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, if I, if I, I much would have, pref- I would have preferred to have been down a little bit lower, but I got there, you know, I, I was able to, uh, you know, uh, command Charlie company one seven five, uh, under, um, Colonel Clark, uh, now general Clark. Um, and that was, that was a true, you know, and command Sergeant major Hardy who had been my first Sergeant in Charlie company three, seven, five. So it was, it was great. And I had great Rangers. I had the best Rangers you could, you could ever want. So when do you get to, to kind of download all this experience and knowledge that you have into actual physical action? You know, I'll tell you, I I don't know that I ever stopped doing that. So, so it's funny. I got to back up a little bit. You know, I told you about doing that Haiti deployment before I went to the regiment and I learned so much in that Haiti deployment. And that's where I first saw that we weren't preparing soldiers to think. And it, it was where I first started kind of challenging the norms um, of, of what we had been doing. Because up to that point, I think I was pretty happy with the norms. Um, but once once I, I saw Haiti and then the things that I learned in Haiti, you know, I, I was able to use in training up through, you know, not up till 9-11. And then 9-11, I, I had you know, for the first part, uh, of that war, I had a front row seat to what was going on and, and, and being there, uh, with, with the, with the units that were executing, um, because the, the air is obviously part of the, the, the attack. Um, and so being able to kind of be, have a front row seat to that. So I had, I had kept all of it, you know, everything that worked and everything that I thought, yeah, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I want to do this or, Hey, um, they're not empowering their rangers enough. I want to empower my rangers, and and not to mention, you get to learn as the air. I get to learn from all the first battalion guys, the second battalion guys, and the third battalion guys, as well as the guys of the regiment. And being able to sit and talk to Sergeant Major Birch, who was probably one of the best warriors the regiment has ever seen, um, and just pick his brain, like, hey, you know, this just happened. What do you think? What, what, you know, how would, what would you have recommended? What would you have done? Um, and then, so when I, when I took command, um, first with, uh, Ferrucci was my first, first sergeant, and now he's the 82nd Airborne Division Command Sergeant Major. And then, uh, Mike Masson was my second first sergeant. And now he, I believe he's the Sergeant Major of the Asymmetric Warfare Group. Um, you know, those are two experienced warfighters and, and we just jumped in and started running and, and we, you know, our first conversations were always, okay, this is what I saw. This is what I think. What did you see? What do you think? And because of that, I think I think the company was very, very successful. Okay, so uh, what is your first actual experience in combat itself? Uh, let's see. Well, I was we I was in Winter Strike. So what's that? Uh, o two, mm-hmm. and then um, continued to deploy to Afghanistan through O two, O three. I was on the initial invasion into the western portion of Iraq. Um, well, and, and the and, only reason I asked this, well, go ahead, finish your yeah. last part. Go ahead. I, yeah, just well, and then, and then um, did uh, did Iraq and Af- 
Afghanistan, bouncing back and forth um, until I think my last deployment with the regiment, which was five deployments, was uh, we were in Afghanistan in 05. Okay, so in, in all these experiences and thinking the way you think, did you see the kind of, uh, you know, obedience that you were talking about before unfold in combat in negative ways? Uh, I did not see it with the Ranger Regiment. Okay. Not, not up to then, no. Um, I, I did not. I, I saw guys who were, who learned every single time something happened. Uh, there was there there wasn't this idea of obedience. There was this idea of innovate, get better. We can go faster. We can we can we can perform at a higher level. I think when I first saw it, you know, so after I left the war college, I went to uh, SFOD selection and uh, blew out my knee uh, okay. during selection and was terrified that I was going to end up going to uh, I don't know wherever the army needed me. And again, you know, luckily having worked for Dan Allen, Dan Allen was uh, in charge of ops in the army and they were starting this new, the asymmetric warfare group and Birch was a sergeant major. And I went to that selection uh, and was selected and went to OTC. And that's when I started to see when, when you were passing through units and you were, you were looking at what they were doing, I realized Holy cow. Because up to that point, I mean, I've been so lucky, right? I've been in the 82nd. I've been in, in the Rangers. And I've been in this unit that was, you know, the Strikers, which was just starting. And we were given free reign to, to command the way we wanted to command. And then I got to see the rest of the Army, which up to that point, I just heard stories. Sure. I mean, yeah. we didn't even operate with them, right? I mean, we were operating at night. Everybody else was doing the day. I mean, we, I didn't see anybody else. So here I am, a major, and it's like I'm I'm finally seeing what the rest of the army is doing, and I go, oh, and it's not their fault. Like these are not bad people; these are not dumb soldiers; these are not dumb officers; these are not dumb NCOs. These are people who are who are who are pegged inside this this very confined box, and with leaders that won't let them operate because they're afraid of the risk. But the risk was so much greater by not letting them operate. And so so my sixth deployment in 2007 with AWG, when I went, you know, almost all over Iraq working with units and half of Afghanistan, I went, I I can't believe this is where we're at. Not that I thought less of them, but that I, I did see I did think less of some of their leadership. It's it's funny you talk about that. And, you know, my experience in the Army um, you know, active duty in in a logistics world as my, you know, a logistics officer by trade. Um, and then I got out and I went to the guard and then I deployed uh, after 9-11 in, in 2005 and 2006. And I was fortunate enough to be attached to, as I mentioned before, the special forces. And that opened my eyes to a whole different world. Um, and, and it's funny, I always tell people, I didn't know about special forces when I was on active duty. If somebody would have told me I certainly would have signed up because it was more my mentality. It was more my speed. I don't know if physically I would have lasted um, because I, at that point, my early on in my career, like you said, I, I, you know, I did my best I could on my PT test, but I just never really tried anything further because I was just more into athletics per se as opposed to PT. Uh, anyway, I'm digressing, but my point is is that when I got to this the, the special forces world, and I realized that 
nobody was going to sit there and tell me how to do a job. They just told me what they needed and allowed me the room to figure it out on my own. And then I began to understand more and more. And after I had left that deployment and I had gotten back and, and oh, by the way, they, they tasked me with things that I would have never in my wildest dreams could have ever thought that me, a captain at that point in time would have ever done. I mean, I, I, I joke with people who said, I saw more combat experience than 75% of the infantry during that deployment. Because although the guys were doing was garden gates and garden prisons and everything else, and me, I, I'm driving around Baghdad for 6,000 miles with my hair on fire and running through the streets like I'm some sort of infantry guy. And it was nothing I was ever trained for, but it's what the mission called for. And as long as I was allowed to do it and do it successfully, they just kept asking me to do more. And that's how I knew I was doing it right. Because I right. learned very quickly in that environment that they don't have time to teach you things. They don't have time to, to hold your hand through stuff. They just want the job done. And, and really, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, as long as you get it done, then they'll give you another task. And, and if you can yep. thrive in that environment, then you're okay. But when you take that mentality back to the regular army, because after you get back from deployment and you try to download all this knowledge, you meet with so much resistance. And it's like, man, this is a different army that I'm in. Yeah. So uh, it, it's amazing. Right. And I, I actually, I actually just did a, uh, I just did a video series on, on giving guidance. And I talk about this idea of think outside the box, think outside the box is what we're telling people. It's really horrible freaking guidance. It's, it's garbage, right? It's a bumper sticker because, you know, if you're a, if you're a baseball pitcher and, and your coach is like, look, I want us to get better. Think outside the box, how we get better. And the pitcher comes up and goes, Oh, I think we could be better if I stood 20 feet in front of the rubber. No, 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 no. That would be against the rules. You got, you got to stand on the rubber. So what I tell people is, look, I, I need you to think inside the box. The box is what's legal, ethical, moral, and safe. And here's the deal. If you think you're going to cross one of those lines, I need you to talk to me. If you don't think you're going to cross one of those lines, do whatever you want to do. And because what I found is subordinates boxes are almost always smaller than ours. They always think, you know, usually you have to push them and you're like, oh, no, no, it's much, you can keep doing this because that's plenty safe. Keep going. Keep going. You're good. Keep going. Um, but I always say, hey, think, hey, you can do anything you want inside the box. And we have things that are legal and ethical and moral. And the safe thing, you know, it, it runs. I, I accepted a lot of risk on most things. Um, and, you know, my line was was way farther than most of my subordinates. And, and eventually they start to to push out and push out and push out if they get too close or they cross over a little bit. Well, that's okay. That's what leaders are there for. You go, Hey, come here, come here. I mean, we forget that our subordinates aren't there to protect our careers. We're there to develop them. And, and we're supposed to underwrite when they make, we're supposed to celebrate when they make mistakes. As long as those mistakes aren't born in negligence, we're supposed to say, yeah, Hey, you made a mistake. It's all right. Don't do that dumb thing again. I mean, that's, that's what good leaders do. And, um, I saw in uh, so much in the, in the bigger army, um, and certainly, unfortunately at Tradoc. And again, I, I did, you know, Becker was at Tradoc. I loved Becker. Um, you know, there were some really great, you know, the Meyer witches of the world there, there were some really tremendous leaders. Um, but you sit there and, and, and I worked for one guy who was so risk averse, you know, he's like, well, we should paint the bottom of the magazines that have live ammo in them red. And I said, 
Huh? Sure, that's not gonna that's not gonna happen <laughs> in combat. He's like, well, they're basic training. I'm like, great, we're gonna get these kids. All they're gonna see is red bottoms of magazines. They're gonna get to the first assignment and go, why aren't these magazines red? So we got to teach them what live ammo looks like from the top, not from the bottom of their magazines. Um, but it was this idea that we had to we had to you know put these so much control measures on people. And the problem, as you know. When you put too many control measures on guys, um, they 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 don't develop. They just they just do what they're told to do, um, and uh, you know obviously that we can't do that. So I'm I was I'd like to say that I took every combat deployment um, and was and again very happy to consistently be at the front of the action where where the Rangers were and then where AWG was but take everything that I learned and kind of it, it helped develop my leadership ideas and, and, and how I now try to transfer that on to, to the people that, that I'm lucky enough to work with. JC, when you talk about making mistakes and allowing people latitude to make mistakes, that's a different equation in combat. Uh, just because people's lives are so much more on the line. Like you, you talk yeah. about uh, legal, moral, and ethical. Well, sometimes illegal, moral, and ethical doesn't even matter in combat because it's the ultimate equalizer of everything. And and I don't know if it happened. And if you have an experience, please you know share it. But when it comes to combat and allowing people to make mistakes and think on their own and, and go outside of what would be considered norms or training, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, Um you know, I, I, I do have some stories, but, I, but I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this one instead. Instead of a war story, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you some great guidance that was given to me because I think it's more meaningful, um, or at least it's more meaningful to me. Um, I was going um, for my fifth deployment, as, and I was a company commander in the regiment, and, you know, uh, the battalion commander says, yeah, uh, all right, what are your goals? You know, you, you know, the, the drill, you know, what are you going to do during this deployment, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I give them, Hey, I'm going to do this, sir. I'm going to do this. And I want to do this. And I'm going to bring all my guys back home. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, that's, that's the dumbest goal you can possibly have. And I'm shocked, right? Because since I've been a cadet, what do we get told? Every body bag is your mistake. That's your fault as a leader. And he says, uh, hey, JC, um, I got a couple of concerns with that. And, and here's what they are. One, if you're worried about keeping all your guys alive, you may not do what needs to be done for the mission. You can keep all your guys alive staying on the cop, uh, combat outpost. You, you can keep all your guys. Heck, we can keep all the guys alive, maybe, if we don't train and just stay here. Um, so I worry when you say that, that if something comes up and you have to you have to do the mission. You have to accomplish the mission. What, what's your priority? And I was like, well, sir, of course we're, we're going to do what we have to do. And he said, I, I know that. But when you say stuff like that, and here's the other thing, if you can do everything right in combat, you can have the best Intel yep. and be making the best decisions based on what you know, but the enemy gets a vote and you can do everything right. And, and your men are going to die. And here's what I'm going to tell you, JC, if your men die, and it's not born from your negligence, meaning you should have known something or you should have done something or you should have prepared in a certain way. If it's not born from your negligence, it's okay. Now, 
that sounds shocking to those of us, to those who have not been in combat. Well, no, but the, the, the but, converse is true as well, because you could do 100 things wrong and still get out alive. <laughs> so, Because I've said it all the time. I say it repeatedly on the pod, that exact thing. The reason I'm still, still here today wasn't because I did something right and somebody else who, who died did something wrong. And it wasn't because they did something wrong and I did something right. War is random. Combat is random. It, it takes all of that away from you. And, and as you said you, succinctly, the enemy gets a vote. And that's not anything you can train or plan for because you don't know what their decision is. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's so no. true when you say that not everything is always your fault. I know we feel like it's our fault sometimes, but the the, the random nature of war and, and why the bullet went two inches past me as opposed to the right as opposed to two more inches to the left and hit me, I don't have an answer for. I don't. That, that, that's it. And, and, and I think of some of the, the things that I was lucky enough to, to walk away from and that my men were lucky enough to walk away from and, and think of now, now imagine this from a leadership perspective, right? This senior leader just told his subordinate leader that his mistake could be so catastrophic that someone dies. And as long as it's not due to negligence, it's okay. Now I was free to really think about mission accomplishment, right? Now I was free. And it didn't mean that I was any less thoughtful with my guys. I love, you know, I, I can literally say, as I'm sure you can, as anybody you serve, I truly loved everybody I've ever served with. I mean, they were, they were the closest parts of my life. Um, but, but the ability to, to think differently because I wasn't worried about making a mistake and and I did watch, unfortunately, uh, brother commanders who did lose guys and weren't told the same thing as I was told by by their battalion commander. Um, and, and they became combat ineffective for the rest of their guys. Um, and and that's that's a shame. Right. That's because it's because um, very few times did I think they were negligent. I'm not saying they never were, but very few times did I think they were negligent. You know, my only fear in combat was that I did, it wasn't even negligence, that that I did what I was trained to. Like, it was more concerned about myself and doing my job correct. Because I, I kind of figured in that same mantra that if everybody thought about doing their job correctly, then a lot of the other things would take care of itself. Yeah, it, it's inherent for me to take care of my buddy and... You know, and all the great things, fall on the grenade, dive in front of it, whatever it may be. All that stuff is is true. But as a leader for me, it was about me making the right decisions that were in the best interest of mission accomplishment and the safety of my men that that, that I was outside the wire with. And, and that was always my concern was that I was always afraid I was going to lock up or I was going to do the wrong thing or panic. Like that was the only thing that ever consumed me as a leader that that I thought would lead to negligence or lead to a bad decision. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. No, it does. It does. Um, I, I, I can't say that, you know, I, <laughs> when, when you're, you know, I guess I always realize, look, uh, I'm, you know, there's smart Rangers, strong Rangers, and I can bench press a lot of weight. Um, I, I was always kind of, I didn't worry about making the right decisions because by the time the decision got to me, it was so simple. It was like, oh, yeah, do this. Um, well, and you know I was where able I think, to... yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. You know, you know where I think yeah. a lot of that came from for me? See, I wasn't an infantry officer. I, I, was, I was operating in a realm 
that was not my area of expertise. But a lot of sure. people put faith in sure. me and trusted. Like all those special ops guys put faith in me and trusted me to handle this and letting them down and doing the wrong thing and not living up to, you know, we go back to that whole standard thing, but not living up to what they saw as a level of acceptable responsibility is really kind of what I think drove me to a certain point to always make sure that I was worried about, hey, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. Because I, I just, I, I kind of felt like I was try- chasing a ghost, so to speak, in that standard, um, right. where, where I wanted to, I wasn't tabbed and I didn't go through all that, but I wanted those guys to respect me. So I was, I just wanted to make sure I never allowed myself to fall short. I think that's where that fear came from. That makes sense. That makes sense. And that must've been really hard to, to feel like, you know, and, and, and what I can tell you as you, as I know you learned in that environment, um, you know, cause people are always like, Oh, how do you feel about women and doing this? And look, I, I don't, I don't look at people with what they have on their uniforms or what sex they are or what color they are. I look at what you bring to the team and it, it, it probably shouldn't be the same things I bring to the team because that's just redundancy. I want to know, what do you bring to the team? How do you make the team better? And it doesn't need to look like what I do. And it took me, it, it's a combat for me to probably get away. Cause I, I'm sure that if you talk to people who knew me as a young Lieutenant, um, you know, I had my tab and I was like, ah, if you don't have your tab, you know, what's up. Um, and, and boy, was I wrong, but I mean, I'm glad I can look back now and say I was wrong. Um, but what I learned was, and, everybody's bringing something different to the table. And I just appreciate when you bring stuff to the table. It's the people that don't bring anything to the table. I don't care what you got in your uniform. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what color you are. If you bring nothing to the table, I'm I'm really not sure what use I have for you. No, yeah, it's 100% clear. So uh, I'm sorry, but I wanted to go back and finish. I know we got off on a tangent. Go back and finish no, the no. story uh, about you, you were telling about as far as, you know, not a, a war story, but the other part of it. Yeah. So I think, you know, and, and really, I, I think we got to the main part of it, which was, you know, this this guy who I truly respect to this day, one of, one of the best leaders I've worked for able to free me up and understanding that if a man like that can, and, and by the way, right, those are his Rangers as well. Um, when he can look me in the eye and say, your men are going to die. Our men are going to die. It's going to be based on the decision that you make sometimes. And as long as that's not born in negligence, it's okay. Well now, I mean, when I get to talk to, you know, whether it's a professional football coach or a collegiate football coach or a CEO and say, can't your person make a mistake? I mean, if, if I was allowed to make a mistake, that would have, would have meant that a family didn't have their child anymore. Can't you make a mistake that might cost you a little bit of money? Uh, that might bring you back five yards. You know, everybody says, uh, it's funny because a lot of the clients I work with, Hey, we're, we're a production based organization. Yeah, I got it. Guess what? I, I lived in the biggest production based organization (laughs) in the world. And and you know what? I want to see everybody produce, but to produce and get to the next level, you got to make mistakes because you can't innovate if you don't make mistakes. Yeah, you yeah. can't get better if you don't make mistakes. It's funny that somebody speaking to you, somebody of your experience would be that tone deaf to tell you, yeah, we're a results-based organization. Oh, you sure? Okay. Yeah. Cause as if you didn't understand what that meant. Uh, anyway. Oh, you would, <laughs> you would actually be very, very surprised with what I get, uh, with, with what I, I hear people tell me about, uh, especially, you know, as a, as a leadership advisor in this world, and there's a few of us, but there aren't many of us. Um, and, you know, and I got to be honest, my book 
was specifically, I, I wrote it in the third person because I don't want it to be about me and my war stories. I want it to be about ideas and how you make people better. Uh, I'm writing my second book right now called Meditations of a Ranger, kind of off Marcus Aurelius um, uh, meditations. And again, it's all third person. It's like, hey, you need to think about this because I think that uh, we've gotten to a place where I know everybody likes a story and that's good. And I try to include stories. I don't say whether they're mine or, or not, but I, I think what's important is how do you apply whatever I learn in combat? You know, how do you apply it in the classroom? How do you apply it on the sports field? How do you apply it in the business world? Um, I'm less concerned with how the military applies it now because they got it and they're on it and they're, they're doing what they need to do. Um, but I think being able to translate Kind of, but I get told all the time, well, you, you don't, you don't really understand what we have to accomplish here. I'm like, yeah, I, I got it. I once, I, I tell this funny story. I was working, uh, it was one of the first things I got to do. I was doing some advisory work with the NFL and I was meeting with the NFL legends and we were talking about a number of different things, you know, openly gay players in the NFL, uh, use of the N word, um, and hazing or bullying which all of those three things to me was, I can't believe like, this is really simple, right? You, you can't bully a 300 pound man because you're either doing something illegal or you have to get over it. Th there are some other things that, that go on, but at the end of the day, come on, let's, let's make sure that we're looking at this right. Um, the use of the N word was, was a huge issue. And, you know, you sit there and you, you come from an organization that's, that's colorless and you go, Either everybody can say it or nobody can say it. It's one of those two things. You can't let some people say it and other people if they work for the same organization. It's either all or nothing. Um, but so we were talking about these things and we were talking about how players behave and professionalism. And I and they were saying, well, we, you know, we've, we're entertainers and we're this. I'm like, well, wait a second. Why? I'm talking about this giant. And, and I don't think a whole lot of guys, I'm, I'm not a small guy. But this guy, like, I felt small around this guy. He's a defensive end. And uh, I said, look, why do you get so excited and dance around like fools and slap each other on the butts when you sack a quarterback? And the guy, he looks at me, he goes, because it's really hard to do. And I say, you're right. It's pretty easy to seize an objective with other dudes shooting at you as you fast rope down a, <laughs> down a fast rope and you know season objective I, you're, you're right i probably don't have any idea and he kind of looks at me and goes uh, okay point taken um and and i'll tell you i've, I've been able to you know I've, I've gotten i've been really really fortunate working with the, the carolina panthers and uh, coach rivera and they've really embraced a lot of that if you watch on the defensive side of the ball for sure um you know there's not you know there's 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 they're passionate, they're excited, but there's not this foolishness of they get up, especially if you watch the D line, you know, they do their job and they get up to get ready to do it again. Um, and that's, uh, and, and, and I'm glad because, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting uh, how, how everybody kind of sees their, their place in the world is unique and, and that's good. I like that. But, Man, there's a lot of stuff that I'm that I'm able to carry over from my 20 years uh, and to give to to these other folks, and and I think I think it is important to to provide that you know the adaptive thinking, the resiliency, the the leadership that's about people first, all those things. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. 
Hey, JC, since you brought it up, uh, you know, you went into consulting in your post-military career, but how did you know that it was time to <laughs> hang up the boots and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm done being in the Army? Um, so in, in honesty, uh, it was a couple of things. Um, one, I was diagnosed with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, um, I attempted suicide four times. Um, ever, nobody, nobody lets you know about when you're not, when you're going to combat, there's no problems, right? When you're going to combat every three or four months, um, you don't have any issues because you don't have time to have issues. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, when you stop going to combat, I, I found I had some issues. Um, uh, particularly about 15 months after, after I did my last deployment. Um, but I, you know, after it was, it was while I was in command and it was recommended that I, uh, be uh, medically retired. And I fought that and, uh, I was able to stay. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall was, I, I don't know, you know, there's, there was still a little, um, uh, at the time, I think there was, there was a lot more stigma, uh, associated with, Sure. Uh, the injury uh, than there should have been um, because I thought I was still very good at my job. I just really struggled uh, with some other stuff. I mean, it was really transparent. I don't even think that uh, until I was very open with my drill sergeants after I changed command, they didn't even know. Um, and nor did my command. Was it your um, combat experience that led you to the PTSD? I mean, is it that, that clear yeah. to say? Yeah. Yeah. When, when and, you and, Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. I was going to say, when you look back on it, um, it, it did, did the combat experience, did the bad, or the, did the good outweigh the bad? Oh, no, no. The, see, see, that's the thing is, it wasn't, um, I, you know, and I, I got to, I got a, I had a great psych. Um, it, it wasn't, I didn't feel like survivor's guilt or I wasn't remorseful for the things that, it ha that I had done. I'll tell you what it was, is I missed the crap out of what I was doing. Um, I had purpose. Uh, everything was very clear, right? You, you, you know, you, you knew that, Hey, I, I, you go outside the gate, you do your business. Uh, the business is very clear, right? You, it's, it's this side or this side. And, and, and maybe you're figuring it out on the fly, but, it, but still the lines are pretty, pretty easy to see, um, in a combat experience. And you get back and all of a sudden you think something's wrong with you because you miss that. And I lacked purpose, right? The purpose was so clear before. I mean, I was, I was, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was, I was taking care of bad guys. I was leading men to take care of bad guys. I was, the purpose was so clear and the purpose becomes less clear. Uh, or at least to me, everybody's experience I know is different. But for me, it was the purpose was less clear. It wasn't, it wasn't the trauma of anything I had done uh, in my mind. It was the trauma of no longer doing those things, of no longer having a purpose um, and feeling, quite honestly, a little um, – you know, I lived in a Nerf world, right? Nothing was dangerous anymore. Nothing was hard. Um, it, it was – I mean, did it that lead to emptiness? Was it, is that, was that what kind of led down? The it was, it was road? completely, I, I, I absolutely, I didn't have anything. I, and, and I was angry. I was angry all the time. What led to the suicide uh, road was I was angry all the time because they didn't have a purpose. And, um, 
I was working for some folks that that couldn't comprehend because they they hadn't you know by that time if you're an 06 um, maybe you'd done two deployments but you know that that 06 had only seen the inside of a talk he never saw a target in his sure. life yeah um, so our experiences were very very different since I'd been there since I was a captain and even once I was a major I was in small groups out with units engaging with the enemy so um, they wouldn't understand and I was frustrated. And so I lacked purpose. And because of that anger, uh, I'm very, very close with my children. I mean, I, I have three beautiful children uh, who I'm very, very proud of. I always have been. I, I don't, I've never, you know, hit my kids. I think they've gotten spankings like collectively all three of them five times um, because the, I was actually abused as a child. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to hit them. Um, and, and I found myself, yelling at them for absolutely no reason right like my son once couldn't swallow a pill he's like 12 years old and i'm i'm chewing his ass because he can't swallow a pill and in my head i'm going what are you doing why are you doing this stop doing this but i couldn't stop um and you know my daughter would would do something like she would interrupt you know she's she's a 15 16 year old girl and, and she would interrupt something i was saying and i would lose my mind um, and I and I was truly concerned that I was making um, their lives uh, more of a burden than it deserved to be because I couldn't get my shit together. And um, and that's where that came from. That that's wow. why uh, that's why suicide seemed like a, a, an option um, because I just was I didn't. I didn't, I was angry because I wasn't doing what I should have been doing anymore. I didn't have a purpose. I couldn't get through to people, um, which was probably my fault for not communicating effectively. And then I treat these, these people that I think are the greatest people in the world poorly. And I can see myself doing it. It's almost like if you're in a, in a dream, you know, you, you know, you're doing it, you can't stop. And so that's, that's where that came from. Um, I, I worked with, with a great psych and, and, you know, at one point I was on like, I don't know, like 24 different meds. Wow. Um, I, I now only have to take one. Um, you know, I, uh, I used a service dog, uh, and now he, he, he doesn't get worked as much as he should because I, I really do feel a lot better. Um, I don't, you know, not every day is awesome. Uh, nights are still a little tough, but, um, but but I'm much less anxious, much, I'm not angry at all anymore. Um, I really, you know, I really took a proactive uh, role in my recovery. Well, listen, uh, one, I appreciate you sharing and being so candid and honest. And two, I applaud your courage. Uh, it's, it's not easy. And, and anybody who's been through it uh, on the PTSD world, you know, knows how hard it is. But for those who haven't, it, it just, it, it's impossible to explain how your mind can overtake everything in your life uh, when, when you deal with the level of things that, that we have dealt with in combat and, and beyond. And uh, even even the way you look at it, because there's a lot of people in the podcast we talk to about survivor's guilt and, and how that consumes them and, and, you know, flashbacks and tremors and things of that, you know, that's typically what people think of. But there is a whole nother level, as you have pointed out in your specific case, that Emptiness is a big part and purpose. It's what we live for in the military. 
everything has a purpose. Every task, even we talk over going back to standards, everything has a purpose. Everything has a bigger picture and a bigger goal. When you remove that, there's a, there, there is a certain sense of searching for something you can never find. And, and, and that is very, very emotionally, you know, disturbing. It, it's just, I, I don't know if people outside the military can understand it. I know people who are in the military can, but I, I just wanted to thank you for sharing it and, and certainly no. take a moment to applaud your courage. And I'm, I'm, for your kid's sake, as a parent, I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad you're still kicking it around, man. Yeah, I, I am too. And, and, you know, it was, uh, it, it, you know, I never, I never question. I, I, I get to talk to a lot of vets now who are struggling and I share and because I do know that, hey, that seems like a really viable solution. You know, I, I don't buy this. Oh, it's a coward's way out. It's not a solution. They stop it. it. It's, you know, special operations forces have the highest rate of suicide of any soldiers uh, because they do have the courage to do it. Um, they, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to solve a problem. They see a problem and they want to solve it. Um, I, again, was really lucky because I also reached out to some some friends who worked in, in, in our community and, and they were able to share like I didn't feel so like, hey, I don't have this. I don't have this. Everybody's talking to me about this, this and this. And I don't shit. I don't even feel bad. Like I don't care. And it's like I just want I, I need something in my life. So um, but no, I think uh, I, I am actually rather transparent about it now because I think it's really important to share with with the civilian world that. You know, uh, even though I'm a hundred percent disabled veteran, uh, for a bunch of reasons, I, I can still be productive. I can still live a really, uh, fruitful life and really help uh, a lot of people. And, and I think that, uh, civilians sometimes, you know, I, I constantly get asked when I do use my service dog, Oh, are you training that for someone? Cause if you look at me, uh, I don't know that people say like, Oh, there's something wrong with that guy. I think, uh, I'm like, no, that's my dog. Oh yeah, I know he's your dog, but are you training him for somebody? You know, that's, that's my service animal. Um, and then they don't know what to say. And it's just awkward. Well, geez, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we get to have a conversation, but, um, but I do think it's important. You know, I, I, I know, I, I know very few people that don't struggle with something from their experiences. No, it's, I mean, it's a hundred percent true. And there's so many people on this podcast who have, have, Learn to live with it and learn to deal. And it's not something, it's it's much like anything else, any other disease. It's There's a sense of incurable to PTSD. It, it, it stays with you. You, you. you don't escape it. You just learn to manage it. Uh, and, and you learn to, to, to live with it as part of your everyday life because where you were is always part of who you are now. Yeah. I, I think what's important, though, is that incurable part of, of, of post-traumatic stress is what gave it such a stigma in the military. Yeah. Because if it's your brain, it's like, Ooh, you can't fix that, you know, psychology, et cetera. And what, what I've really started to talk to people about, because again, it took me a while to find the right psych, but she was awesome and got me, you know, surfing and doing meditation and the, the, the service dog. And like, she got me and it was a rewiring of the brain, right? It's so let's look at it as a physiologic physiology physiological problem let's look at it hey if you if you tear your acl what do you do you get it fixed and you go through rehab and your acl is never 100 percent right but it's pretty good you can usually go back to doing all the stuff you were doing i mean i work with professional athletes to tear their acl six weeks later they're back playing games um i look at this as as the brain acl right a bunch of different 
synapses are connecting differently. So if we can rewire those things and we can start to think differently um, and we don't get hooked on the cocktail that I think is the easy way out um, because it numbs you and, and then you don't have to think about anything. Um, and we can be a little bit more proactive and have the discipline, which is sometimes doing stuff like, like, you know what, I'm not going to have a drink tonight instead of, well, I'm going to have one, which will turn into six, um, or holy cow, I'm angry right now. So what, what, what should I do? So I don't act out that anger and, and have those, those, you know, physical therapy, you know, for the brain and have those moments and, and be able to, and again, do you get it perfectly right? No, but you know what? I busted my leg. I tore my MCL. Um, I tore my meniscus. I, you know, I tore my Achilles. I can run, but you know what? Some mornings you get out of bed and it hurts. It's the same thing with, Hey, you know what? I have, I have 90% good days. And every once in a while I have a bad day and I recognize it. And I go, this is just a bad day. This isn't a bad life. But I think it's, I think it's just like, the tears I've got in my legs or my shoulders or, or whatever, that's part of who I am. My experiences are part of who I am. How my brain was wired is part of who I am. And, and, and it's, it's what I choose to do with it to make it better. Right. Cause you and I probably both know guys that, you know, got medically retired physically because they were broken. And instead of getting back in shape, they just decided to become fat, lazy folks. And, and I, I get it, you know, but you don't have to. No, some of that, some of that stuff is a choice and uh, a difficult one, but certainly is, you know, a lot of times people don't realize how much power they still have, even though things are taken away from them. It's uh, you're not taking your, your spirit and your mind away. It's uh, just uh, some of the surroundings that, that are taken yeah. away that change that you have to learn to deal with. Uh, final thought here. Uh, it, yeah. As we kind of wrap up, but uh, Kenning Associates is where you're at now. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, some of the professional sports teams and everything else you're working with. And uh, how did you get linked up with them? And, and kind of where are you as far as I know you're a partner with them, but, you know, what's your day to day work like? Uh, wow. Um, so uh, I, I linked up with them through, you know, I, I had a great guy named Forrest Link, Linkedins who was able to through the lacrosse world because I'm, I'm very involved in the lacrosse world. I, I even coach uh, a professional lacrosse team now. Um, and he was able to kind of help me cause I had no idea. Once I figured out I was going to get out, I had no idea what to do. Um, after an hour long conversation with him, um, his brother was doing leadership consulting. And so I tried it out with his brother and did some, did some contracting work. And, um, I realized, boy, I don't really want to teach like new entry level managers how to lead. Cause that's not fun for me. I really want to teach higher level folks. Um, uh, through, I, I created some intellectual property that's in the book. Um, I've created, and I continue to create, I try to create new ones every year, some new stuff. Um, cause I think you always have to innovate. Um, and Kenning, uh, we, we talked for a while and, and they, they liked the intellectual property and they offered me a partnership. What I'm, what I, what I've worked to now is I'm the managing partner for the sports practice. Um, and, um, I've really developed kind of a partnership inside of a partnership. So that's, that's the Kenning side. And I get, I get to, you know, work with really cool corporations under the Kenning side, but, um, I've linked up with a guy, I don't know, you, you've probably heard of him, Jeff boss. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. okay. So Navy seal, absolute stud, another guy named Tim Paul, 
and another guy named James Stagnita. So Tim Paul was a surface warfare officer. Uh, James Stagnita, uh, 30-year coach at the Division One Collegiate, uh, Division Three, Division One, Ivy, and now professional level coach. 30 years, like one of the most winning, you know, had an undefeated season in the professional ranks. Um, you know, Division Three, absolute, you know, killer. Was at Rutgers as a lacrosse coach. Guy's a stud. Um, and so the four of us have really started to to push hard together um, on kind of the sports teams. So what's really neat is my days are completely different, and I like it. So I'll do leadership with anyone uh, from a private equity firm one day and talking to the partners of that to sitting down with an entire defensive coaching staff um, of a professional football team, talking to a head coach of an NBA uh, team the next afternoon, uh, maybe working with law enforcement for a couple of days after that, teaching them about empathy and leadership and, and ethical decision-making. Um, and then I, I, I write, Frequently, and I'm, I'm starting a webinar uh, this uh, in March, middle of March. I'll offer a webinar with eight classes, uh, also filled, you know, also taught by Jeff and Tim and, and Jim, um, where we'll where, where we'll provide the same kind of uh, advisory support uh, to our web audience as we do to our professional audience. So. Um, and I like that. Like, I like to be able to relate what I'm learning from law enforcement and what they're going through right now uh, to what I learned from a professional football coach or a football player about what he's struggling with and be able to relate it to that equity firm um, or that law firm. And, and that kind of diversity, right, to the business world. Oh, and uh, I just started working with a school. Uh, I've done schools before, but I really started working with a school recently in a little bit more of a, a, a permanent basis where I'm helping them kind of uh, do a paradigm shift on, on how they see themselves. Cause one of the things I do is I work culture. How do we develop deliberate cultures? Um, and so I'm helping them build a culture. I've built the Denver Broncos culture before they won the Super Bowl. Uh, the Carolina Panthers culture was, was done, but I got to do Xbox, a whole bunch of different cultures. And so, so working with all those different folks and being able to take, okay, what I had, and then not just resting on what I've had as the military experience, but then being able to say, holy cow, I was with, the, you know, Johns Hopkins, you know, Coach Petromala, who's, you know, the head coach of Johns Hopkins lacrosse, who's a tremendous leader. I just saw him do this. And you know what, Sheriff so-and-so, that would really work for you. And and I think the clients like that as well. No, that's it's incredible. I mean, listen, you know, your, your military career is impressive, uh, to say the least. Your personal story is certainly courageous, and your post-military career is inspirational. And I, I just thank you so much for sharing it all with us, honesty, candor, all that. And we could talk leadership for hours and days on end, uh, you and I, because there's just so much more I'd love to listen to and learn. And uh, unfortunately, you know, our, our podcast can't uh, can't go days long. But I know everybody who, who listened to this one certainly got a lot from it, and I appreciate everything that you've done tonight, man. Well, hey, thank you. And thank you, you know, thank you for everything you've done. And thank you for creating this, uh, this pathway for, for, for all of us to be able to share with, with, you know, uh, our community, our world community. So I, that really means a lot to me. Because uh, the more stories that are out there, the, the less strange it seems when when we run into others. Absolutely. JC Glick, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.